Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing talented people from all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer and before that as a small town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to talented people from the worlds of documentaries, reality TV, true crime, game shows, sports, business, and much more. If you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. My guest today is Ricarlo Handy. He is making his second appearance on the show. Ricarlo is the CEO of his own production company, Sunwise Media, and he is the executive producer, director, and editor of the powerful documentary Hope Village. He recently executive produced a star-studded mental health storytelling summit, and he is also the founder of the Handy Foundation. In terms of unscripted television, he is an editor, producer, creative executive, and director with credits such as Double Shot at Love with DJ Polly and Vinny, Floor Bama Shore, Hell's Kitchen, and Kitchen Nightmares. Please welcome Ricarlo Handy. Thanks for being here, my friend. How are you? Doing good. Excited to uh, get this summer going. All right, let's do a quick reset. About a year ago, I had you as a guest on No Script, No Problem after you posted on Facebook looking for black editors and your post went viral because a white editor responded very negatively. You became a big part of a movement to get more inclusion and diversity in the entertainment industry. Now, one year later, with the work you've done through the Handy Foundation, have you seen a lot of movement? Have you gotten a lot of AEs and editors and people work? Have production companies and networks been supportive of the things you're trying to do? Yeah, for sure. I think that one, timing was, is everything. And I think as of last year, this time last year, you know, people really started to pay attention that hadn't paid attention before. Or, or you know, one of the major things that had happened right around that time was the networks and the, um, and the unions had started to actually take account of their diversity. Because I think that no one had ever really looked at it. They knew it was bad. They didn't really know how bad or what the disparity was, the numbers were. And so what, it, what, what everyone found out last, this time last year is that, you know, we're lo- really looking at, you know, African-Americans and Latinos being, you know, less than 3%, you know, overall, less than 1% in some unions, you know, as far as the IATSE unions working behind the scenes of, of the majority of our shows. You know, I've been an editor myself for 20 years and hadn't been on many shows, if any, where there was more than one black person in, in all of post. And so we all see the problem every day 
but I think this last year, everyone really got into action. There's a lot of groups that have been doing work in production and writing and other creative uh, areas, um, but it really seemed like post, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of traction until, until this post happened. And so I, I connected with everyone that I knew that was doing something about the problem. Everyone that I knew was interested in diversity in their own companies. And what we, we partnered with the Urban League and started training people because even with the list that we originally put out, the 400 to 500 people on that list um, still represent a fraction of, of, of the jobs that are available. Because, you know, you think about it, 70% of jobs are non-union and there's 8,000 people in, the, in, the, in, in local 700, right? So, so you can extrapolate that number. There's, the, you know, if my list is only 500, there's, there's thousands of people, there's thousands of jobs out there um, that need to be uh, filled and trained for, and our industry is growing. So, so the cool thing that we were able to accomplish over this last year is form some cool partnerships, and we'll have some more announcements as we come up on our one-year anniversary of, of starting this movement uh, coming here in, uh, in, in June, June 24th is when we officially launched but essentially, we've been able to place people on on scripted shows at, at companies like Stars, like Lionsgate is a partner, IPC is a partner, Free Fremantle is a partner. You know, we are we are in partnership with uh, with with, with Tenopolis, which is Magical Elves and and A Smith. A lot of non scripted people step up to play. We also got a lot of scripted folks too. Specifically, Lionsgate partnership has been really cool. So, all that to say. It's just been a really good experience getting to know this process and getting to create this process where people can come to us, get trained, and then get an opportunity to get their first-time employment. And so ultimately what we've been able to do is, is grow the amount of pool of workers that are available from a diverse background in post-production. And I'm so glad to hear that. Let's just reset for the audience what the Handy Foundation is and how production companies, networks can reach you guys. You know, one, you can go to handyfoundation.org to find out more. You can email us there. Um, you can just email ally um, at handyfoundation.org to get any information. But the, the high level discovery that we made was that even if we employed everybody on our list, every black editor and assistant editor that had credits um, and all those folks were employed, it would still be a situation where we would be lacking, right? We would be lacking in a lot of different areas, specifically in the area of giving people opportunities to get started. And so, and so what we focused on, instead of, you know, working on our list and giving them people, people that already have credits, we needed, we wanted to increase the diversity pool. So we actually do an assistant editor training and that assistant editor training consists of bringing some of the top AEs, to train uh, in a real work environment uh, with real media, with real avid projects, you know, the process that you would go through if you were on a real show. So, so I, I like to say our trainees aren't trained, they're coming to your show with work experience. And so because we do it that way, you know, these trainees have been highly successful. Uh, people, one of our trainees, you know, as soon as they got, they got six or seven weeks in on a job at, at a, one of the companies they hired them on permanently. Another one of our trainees is, is gonna be the lead AE on the next show that they come on. You know, these are folks that have been trying to get in this industry, but they just don't know anyone. 
and they haven't had anyone give them the opportunity because they don't, you know, people don't know each other and so they don't trust each other. And so they don't just blindly give them that opportunity. And as you know, most of the shows and jobs in our industry, 90% of them never end up online. It's someone digging in their cell phone, texting a buddy. And if, if, if these black folks and Latino folks and folks from underserved communities aren't in your tech, aren't in your phone book, um, you aren't hiring them generally. And, and I, you know, I was, um, in the same boat as a showrunner and a, and a network executive, you know, fortunately I had a larger network of African-Americans and Latinos because that's the world that I come from. I'm black myself. And so those are my friends and family, those people that I haven't been bringing up myself. But if you haven't been doing that actively, then you wouldn't know those folks. And so that, that's why it's been a really great service for folks that just don't have these folks in their circle. And because they're not in their circle, they can come to us. We'll be able to introduce a lot of people to a whole new world of talent they didn't even know was available or existed. Last summer, you saw a lot of networks and production companies, just companies in general, you know, make blanket statements supporting Black Lives Matter, supporting uh, people of color initiatives um, to, to provide opportunities. Do you feel like those companies, whether it's in the entertainment industry or elsewhere, are following through and giving more opportunity for people of color. Yeah, I think that it'd be wrong to say that there's not more opportunity. I think there's definitely more opportunity. Um, I think that what I've seen consistently lack is really being equitable in the seats at the table, decision-making table, right? Where I think people are interested in, 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 in helping um, as much as they can uh, and being equitable. Um, but at the same time, there's definitely instances where, you know, the, the, the energy shifts when, when there's a fundamental change in leadership. And so, and so the power you have, you know, in the C-suite, you know, on the executive side is not necessarily the same power you have on like the, you know, the DNI diversity and inclusion side. And, it, and it's different at every company, the larger the company, you know, the more actually, and I find that when the pub for the publicly traded companies, I, I feel like they're making a consorted effort. Like I really do. I feel like a lot of the companies that have been the most receptive are the larger companies. Um, ironically, I think the smaller privately held companies, you know, where they only have like a few shows, you know, and they have their core team you know, it doesn't, it may not feel as urgent for them. I, I don't know. I just know that there's been a little, they're, they're sometimes a little slower to the table. And and I think, I think because the, you know, I, I really don't know the details, right? What goes through someone's mind when that choice is in front of them of like, do I, do I join this program? Do I, do I give to this cause? Do I um, support, um, the, 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 you know, uh, you know, bringing in more employees? The cool thing is, is that some of the, the, the one of the ways that we've been able to make a lot of this happen is people have been adding line items to their budget to to give folks more experience. And, and, and so that's been the, the, the positive side. People have been giving, opening up their pocketbooks and things like that. It's not like um, everything has changed, though. There's definitely folks that just aren't on aren't on that side of the table yet. And so what we've been doing is we've been focusing just on allying who is looking to ally with us. And, and, and not really, you know, um, not really give so much energy to trying to change hearts and minds. I feel like folks will come around when they come around because 
the positive thing about having a more diverse show or more diverse set is you 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 introduce new ideas and that's where innovation comes that's where better storytelling comes i mean we we, we placed one trainee on a show that was uh, half in spanish and they didn't have any people in spanish in post-production uh, that, that spoke spanish in post-production so so you know little things like that actually become a very big deal you just executive produced a mental health storytelling summit a huge event special and you had big name celebrities like oprah winfrey trevor noah kenya barris rachel bloom amongst many many others mental health has become a topic that many people are talking about and you know it's something that was taboo uh, to discuss many years ago and now you have athletes like naomi osaka who just you know stepped away from the French Open, uh, you know, who's talking about it. Uh, you had Kevin Love, NBA star, who very, you know, p- very famously uh, talked about his struggles with it. So as the executive producer on this big event, what did you learn about mental health? You know, I before doing this project, I had done another documentary called Hope Village, and it was really about uh, addiction and recovery from addiction, uh, from substance abuse, uh, disorder. And so I had already spent a lot of time diving into the connections between mental health and substance abuse and and all the um, kind of underlining factors. And it's interesting because this storytelling summit that I did with Viacom and, and Disney was a partner, Amazon was a partner. Um, essentially, they all came together. And any, anyone listening should go check it out, Better bettertogethersummit.org. Um, you know, the whole, the whole purpose of it was, was that this is a reality of our lives, right? Like it's a reality of our lives that mental health is in, and mental health disorders are in our families, in our personal lives. And, but the stories that we tell as a community of Hollywood don't always reflect those stories, not only not in a positive light, but just don't reflect them accurately either. And sometimes that can be damaging as creators, as storytellers, as producers, as, you know, whatever you do in this business, you got to be responsible for what you put out in the world. um, Because someone's watching that and taking it on and it's impacting them. So, so essentially, the coolest thing about that project was it wasn't it was I would consider it bipartisan, right? It wasn't like, you know, anybody was um, there trying to say their network is better, one network is better, this and that. They were saying, as an industry, we have to all do better and tell more of these stories and tell them more accurately. So there's actually a um, toolbox that was that was put on the website when you register. I guess I shouldn't say toolbox, actually. They, they, we should say best practices. They give you a list of best practices, you know, depending on what kind of content you're making. And then producing the actual summit was cool because you know, everybody that came on from Chuck Lorre, you know, Chuck Lorre and Kenya Barris have a conversation. Regina, Regina Hall came on and talked about the hate you give, talked about racial trauma. Uh, we talked about uh, substance abuse. We talked about uh, a million little things um, with, with Romney Malco and the creator of that show, talking about their experience in, with suicide and depression and, and telling stories about that. So, you know, this is all stuff that we deal with. And so we were celebrating folks that were being really responsible with their storytelling and had done a good job. So it was, it was a really cool project to do. Coming out of the pandemic, 
we all want to rush back into what we're all calling normal life. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like, yeah, we just dealt with a year where nothing was normal. We had a horrific pandemic. We had the biggest social change movement of my lifetime. The, and, and you had a, a presidential election that honestly feels like it's still lingering that, you know, we're in the biggest political strife uh, of our lifetime. And for me, that is a mental health crisis. Do you feel like it's something that we that we are overlooking, you know, in your experience, having, you know, been a part of this project? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that we kind of mantra that we kind of kept saying over and over again is that, you know, mental health is just like physical health, right? And we don't really think about it that way. And we don't talk about it that way because unfortunately in Western culture and United States, you know, anything that is a weakness or we don't understand or, you know, we want to keep hidden, there's a, there's a big culture around hiding things and not talking about things, right? You know, which, which we can get into about, you know, history and culture that's happening around some of the laws being trying to be passed right now. But much like you need to be physically healthy to run a marathon, you need to be mentally healthy to, to make, you know, wise decisions, right? And, and you, there's, there's practices you can do to stay mentally healthy, just like you can stay physically healthy. And I think that it's just a shift in thinking. So that's really a, one, one of a lot of things we talked about. And then much like you can have a, a physical ailment that can, you know, you know, hurt your, your physical abilities, you can have a mental ailment that can help hurt your mental abilities as well. But there's treatment, there's, there's uh, practices, there's opportunities for you to, to get better from that on both sides. And so we just, we just have to like switch our thinking. I think that we hide from these stories and these things in our lives too much. And it's about, I don't know whether it's embarrassment or, or whether it's, uh, you know, this kind of facade we want to, you know, put out to the world. But yeah, not, nothing's perfect. No one's perfect. And everyone needs help sometimes. And that's kind of was the message of the, of the uh, summit. I think it's a stigma. And I don't know if it is American culture, which glorifies macho kind of toughness that I can, I can handle this specifically men. I do think just even dealing with the pandemic, like being on a text chain and checking in with people was super helpful for Mm -hmm. me, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I hope that we do recognize that having a rough day dealing with these things like that is that that's going to happen. And I hope that come, you know, this acknowledgement that mental health is something we all deal with. I think that's the important thing. And I, what I hope is that, you know, when you hear a celebrity talk about it, that's one thing, but that even average everyday people like myself or like you, um, we are allowed to have those days where we're dealing with mental health. Cause I think, you know, it's easy to support a Naomi Osaka or a DeMar DeRozan, you know, or a Kevin Love. But I think it's important when we get to that step where we're supporting our friends who need a day off. That's where I think we need to get. At the end of the day, I hope that, you know, with coming out of this pandemic, you know, period, people all recognize how much they need other people more, you know, and, 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 and actually put some action behind that and connect more with each other, support each other more 
and just being a little less judgmental about where people are because I think everybody needed somebody during this 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 pandemic. You know, we all you know had those moments, those days, those times where we're like, you know, just connecting with other people was cool. What I re- you know what I realized during the pandemic, especially because our clubhouse blew up a lot during that time. And I realized how many of my friends were single, no kids and no family like nearby and were just like by themselves. And, you know, loneliness is a real thing, right? And it seeps in all these other other things. And so like depression can seep in and all of that. And um, until so we get sucked up in our work or whatever, but at the end of the day, we still need to connect with people. Like you just, you need that connection. You can't be alone and live life alone forever. It just doesn't, doesn't work long-term. I've mentioned Naomi Osaka and as a former sports reporter in my previous life, I thought that was a really important and interesting story that happened. Superstar, athlete, great tennis player, stepping away from the French Open because she didn't want to do interviews. You know, she didn't want to do those big press conferences and they, you know, if any athlete like that, you're going to get fined. And she wanted to pay the fine, but she, uh, then they were going to ban her from Grand Slam events. And she felt like it was just better to step away. Um, do you have an opinion on, on this? You know, she is a, a person who was very, uh, a big activist during the Black Lives Matter movement last summer. Do you have any sort of take having been a part of this mental health uh, project? I honestly think that any institution that is more concerned about profit than the mental health of their athletes, I think the institution needs to be looked at. I mean, think about the amount of money she's given up because she didn't have a choice not to participate in the media. You know what I mean? Which I, I think, I don't know, it's, it's a little ridiculous to me. You know, when you think about even like I remember Marshawn Lynch, kind of how he would handle his interviews during during. Yes, I, I think his famous phrase was, um, "I'm just here so I won't get fined." Exactly, exactly, and it's crazy to think, but that's it's a true thing. Like if Marshawn Lynch, right, or 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 Naomi Osaka, like her leg was broken or you know hand didn't work, everyone would understand, right? And it'd be like, no, she, you know, she's not available right now because she's dealing with something very important. But you say, hey, my, my, my anxiety is, uh, is too high to do this interview, but I'm still physically fit to, to, to play. You know, I think there's a way you can accommodate them. I think that, I think there's enough talent around, there's enough people around to comment and still tell the story and still be a cool, interesting story without her having to do a, a sit down interview with a bunch of reporters with a mic in her face. That, that's just my opinion. But I think that, I think that that's, a, that's just a telltale sign that the, the capitalism you know, and the structure that's set up with that particular organization isn't accommodating of the, of the, the talent it relies on the function. I think that's a really good point in terms of a physical injury versus what she's saying is she's struggling emotionally or mentally, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, if she had a problem with her ankle or a problem with her knee, we would say, oh, okay. 
and that she'd be okay to miss a, an interview, right? Because she's icing or she had to have extra treatment that mm-hmm. no, no one would even bat an eye. They'd be like, oh, okay, fine. And they'd write about that. Right. But because this is an issue, suddenly you have a lot, you have this huge group who has a problem with it. For me, I think one of the things that's brought up, and again, you know, my early 20s, I was a, you know, young sports reporter in small town America. So I did a bunch of these huge press conferences. Maybe this is a time to look at the fact that huge pressers are obsolete and there's a better way to do this. Do they have another way to get interview questions to them and they can answer them? You know, well, that's a good point. Like one, one thing that I thought about was like, you know, people have their own social media channels now that tell you everything they're thinking and feeling or that they want to share anyway. Right. This relationship between the media interviewing these folks that have a platform where they can share anyway what they want to share anyway. I think is a little, you know, it's, it's a little old school, right? Like there may, there may be a new way. I don't know that I have the answer to what that new system looks like, but you know, a lot of news that we report now anyway, comes from social media anyway. You know what I mean? Like I get a lot of my news from Twitter as do, as do many other folks. So I really, I'd rather hear from her directly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I understand the necessity of, the media needing to hear from athletes specifically during a tournament or after a game. I understand that. I was that person who needed that. But I think it's a chance to rethink how we do that. Is there a more efficient way? Is there a better way? And honestly, I can look back and I don't know if I ever got a great soundbite out of, you know, rushing into a locker room or being in a press conference. Honestly, those were the most insanely stressful kind of scenarios, even for the press, because you're fighting for space in those rooms. You're, you know, I I have distinct memories of being completely drenched in sweat, just trying to set up your tripod and your camera just to get a decent shot of a coach or a player at the podium. And, And you're really just filling up, you know, whether, you know, you're filling up time in your show at that point. So, right. you know, I, I, I do think it's an opportunity for us to rethink how we do these pressers or how we get content if you're in the media. Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to spice up your bedroom is even better. Of course, I'm talking about adamandeve.com. Select almost any one item for 50% off and then Adam and Eve loads on the free stuff. Enter offer code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, at checkout and get 10 tantalizing free gifts. You'll get a sexy item for him, a special gift for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy. You also get six free spicy movies. Plus, all the shipping is free. Just go to adamandeve.com and use offer code BLEAV at checkout. That's B-L-E-A-V. Shifting gears a little bit, you are doing some interesting commercial work and producing some spots with Greenwood Bank uh, with actor Jesse Williams. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing there, how the company is involved. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of in, in alignment with what I've been up to all this year. So they have a commitment as a bank to recirculate the Black dollar and the Black community. Um, and, the, and the reason they call it Greenwood 
is because, you know, as we're all learning now, if you hadn't known before, um, you should know by now, there's a lot of documentaries out about uh, the destruction of Black Wall Street there in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that district, that area was called Greenwood. And so the bank is a fintech company that is evoking the spirit of Greenwood where the black dollar circulated 19 times before it left the community because we had to spend money with each other. Um, there wasn't an option, but also there was a lot of wealth, a lot of money there because there was um, you know, land ownership, big oil boom, people building businesses, doctors, uh, offices, lawyers' offices, you know, banks, uh, grocery stores, schools, everything all in one community. One of the things that we have to do as a community with, you know, being, being Black folks in America specifically, is we need to do business with each other more and more because we, if we don't, no one else will. And so in the, in the spirit of that, they wanted to have a, a Black-owned production company that could actually bring an African-American crew that can still produce at a high level, right? That, and and the, one of the proudest moments for me as a, you know, a producer and a company owner, you know, Jesse Williams on set, you know, he said he's never, never been on a commercial like that, never been on a project like that where it was all these black faces. And, you know, we, and our DP was the same DP of Snowfall, right? Our editor, you know, 25 years experience in editing and, you know, our Steadicam operator um, does a lot of the, all the big shows, right? So, so these are, we just got all the, all the top folks uh, in our industry to come together. They happen to be people of color to, to do this project and we continue to do that. So we're doing, developing some content with Greenwood and we're, and we're um, you know, continuing to pump out the, their commercials as well. And you actually went back to Tulsa for the 100 year anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. What was that like for you to be there? Uh, tell me a little bit about your experience. You know, I've been all around the world, right? I've been, I grew up in Germany, but mostly lived in California my whole life. I have to tell you that Oklahoma and the energy in Tulsa, I could still feel, you know, kind of what the tension, it felt like the tensions of 1921 were still there and not, not in a, you know, violent way, but just in a, a fear way. Like there, I just felt the fear that people have of, of other communities that they don't know or that, that aren't their community. I felt it from the valet at the hotel I stayed. You know, I felt it, I felt it at the airport, right? Like the little hangout spots they have uh, in downtown area. So it was a very interesting energy to experience. Um, but then when I met the people that were from Tulsa that I, you know, got to interview and talk to some descendants directly, you know, got to hear the story and the, the rich history there. I mean, there's so much history there. I know everybody's been kind of watching these documentaries that have been coming out and getting, getting the story, but the massacre, you know, was just one day, right? And, or two day and a half, but, but there was so much stuff that happened from 1865 to the formation of Tulsa you know, where even the formation of Tulsa, you know, they had stole land from the Native Americans. Um, you know, after the Civil War, there was a treaty. A lot of people don't realize this. Uh, the, the Native Americans actually were fought on the, on the side of the, the, the five civilized tribes, fought on the side of the Confederacy, right? And because they also had slaves as well. And so when, when, when the treaty was signed after the, after the Civil War, they, 
and they gave all these land allotments. And so you had a lot of black wealth there, 8,000 plus people that had acres and acres, hundreds of acres of lands each, 160 to be exact. And so, you know, you have this million acres of land. And so, and so just, just meeting people who their grandparents or great grandparents had received those land allotments and then had it stolen from them. And they still, to this day, haven't been able to do anything from about that. The story is way deeper than the 35 or 45 blocks of businesses that existed there. You know, that, that whole, the saddest part about it to me was realizing how much land was there that they, that, that was owned by this group of people that built that community initially. And now it's all reduced to one block. And there's a, there's a sadness around it because all around them, all these developments are going up and, and actually what Black Wall Street is being swallowed up because even in that scenario, they're not having the survivors and they're not having their families included in the conversation around all the development being built up around it. And um, it's, just, it's, it's just very interesting coming into an environment like that and hearing everyone's side, right? And it's like, it's like being in the middle of a domestic dispute and you really, there's really only so much you can do as an outsider, you know, but I think with Bank Greenwood, they, they have some really cool things on the horizon that I think will be very helpful to, to bring in money to that community. So one of the things we did while we were there is uh, we filmed some, some footage with, with Bank Greenwood giving one of the, uh, one of the oldest businesses there, T's Barbershop, that's right on the Greenwood and Asher. Um, $10,000 check to help them invest money into the infrastructure and build and doing some remodeling and things like that. And they're going to continue to do that. And so I'm just fortunate to be able to be there capturing, capturing some of that moment, those moments for the bank. How important is it for networks like History Channel, Nat Geo, CNN, uh, CBS, OWN, I think BET as well, to be doing documentaries on the Tulsa massacre, something that I know I never learned about, and I'm sure most Americans did not learn about in high school or elementary school. How important is that? It's super important. That was just one of many. I mean, the, the thing is, is that when I, when I, when people talk about it there, that was a, a war and it was, um, it was a battle and a long war that was fought you know, from early 1900s through, you know, what we know as a civil rights movement. And that was a war against lynching. Lynching was so prominent that, you know, World War I veterans formed secret societies, you know, African-American World War I veterans, and they would go from town to town and fight against these situations, which is why the Tulsa massacre was so intense, right? Because it wasn't just white folks coming in and, and brutalizing the, the, the community without answering for it. So, so, you know, a lot of white folks died too, because it was a war. Why do we learn about wars, right? Why do they teach us about World War I, World War II, Vietnam War? Why do these things matter? Well, these things matter because typically a couple of things, it usually establishes a treaty or, or some kind of way that we're going to you know, be in business or be in communication or be in community with another nation or another group. But then in addition to that is to learn from that mistake so we don't repeat them. In America, unfortunately, the culture here has always been one of suppression and, and secrecy 
and unfortunately not learning from mistakes. There's this book called Black Box Thinking. I would suggest everyone read it. It really talks about, in a very basic form, the difference between different, the, the culture of different industries. So whereas you have in the, the, the airline industry, right, aviation industry, it's one of learning from your mistakes and incrementally getting better and better, right? So whereas, you know, 100 years ago, it was like a 50-50 chance that if you're on a plane, you would die, right? Now that's down to, you know, less than 0.5% or some, some really nominal number, right? And, and I think, on the other hand, the medical industry, for instance, it talks about how, you know, they, they don't study their mistakes, right? They hide them, they pretend like, well, these things just happen, right? And, and now you're more likely to die from a medical mistake than anything else, right? Like, um, because there is no, 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 no stop gaps. And, and that's just a, the saddest thing. So to answer your question, it's super important for anyone and everyone to tell historical stories and give context, because that's the only way that we'll get better and evolve as human beings, right? It's the only way we'll get better. Uh, our, our legal systems will get better. Our communication will get better. If we understand the mistakes of the past and call them mistakes. And I think that uh, every company and network that's doing something to tell these stories is doing good work. Agreed. And I, and I encourage anyone that has the, the ability and the power to influence your charter school um, after school program, your, uh, you know, your, your P, you're on the PTA. You know, we need to make history and accurate history reporting super important because, you know, what, 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 what happens when you are only learning about this generation, you grow up in a world where you feel like everything has always been how it is. And that's where you get all these folks that, that actually believe that they have the life they have because they earned it, right? And whether your life is great or your life is terrible, there are factors that are out of your control that contributed to that. And, and, and oftentimes, you know, I've explained this concept to a friend of mine that just didn't really understand white privilege, right? And, and I'd explain to them in this way, there's male privilege, right? There's American privilege. There's all these kind of privileges that we have, no matter what group you come from, you know? And, there's, and, and so to, to assume that you are who you are in the world purely because you made it happen is to have no understanding of the connection between the history of uh, the group that you're a part of or the ge ge geography of where you live. You know, everything has a story as to why it is the way that it is. Uh, and a lot of times we just don't understand it because we weren't a part of that decision and we didn't learn it in school. Yes. And I think the phrase that you used there is so critical, accurate history. Yeah, it shift gears. And we have to talk about this massive story, this merger, Warner Media and Discovery. The new company is called Warner Brothers Discovery with the the phrase, the stuff that dreams are made of, okay? And this is obviously huge, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar merger, bringing together brands like HBO, Discovery, Warner Brothers, DC, CNN, WB Games, Turner Sports, Cartoon Network, HGTV, Food Network, TLC, TNT, TBS, Turner Classic Movies, Wizarding World, which I don't even know what that is, Adult Swim, Eurosport, Magnolia, uh, Animal Planet, Discovery ID, and I'm sure 
there's a bunch of others that I'm forgetting. David Zaslov, the current president and CEO of Discovery Inc., and now the future CEO of this company, you know, uh, has said that bigger is better. Ricarlo, uh, mm -hmm. do you feel like bigger is better? It's better for the company to be in competition with the other. I mean, you got to think about, you got, you know, it's a, it's a literally a streaming war going on right now, right? A content war going on where you have, you know, Disney and, and uh, Netflix and Apple and, you know, Amazon and all these folks trying to carve out their market share in the U.S., but also around the world. The big question I have, I should say, is will they make more stuff, right? Like sometimes having multiple networks means there's more, there's more content being created. But now under this one umbrella, will we'll, we'll they still make the same amount of content? I don't know. But I'm curious to know too, will like HBO and Discovery Plus and all that become like one bundle that you now get, much like Hulu and Disney Plus is a can be a bundle and you know, all this stuff. Right. So I, 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 I'm curious about that part of it. The content part, I'm not as worried about. I mean, look, there's gonna be less people, right? Making the decisions for more content, right? So whereas you might've had 10 different people working on the decision-making for those these different platforms. Now it's probably going to come down to one office at the end of the day for a lot of this content, which I do think there'll probably be less things greenlit overall. That, I mean, that's just my opinion. It's just, I think every company is in survival mode because, you know, the world around them is changing. You know, one of the, one of the things that I, that I definitely uh, tell people often and say often is you, you can't resist the world changing around you right? Like of course. the world is spinning, right? You don't want to be the guys trying to stop the world from spinning. You'll lose every time. The way that our business traditionally worked and how shows got greenlit and how shows get pitched, I think will just be changing. And I think there are platforms that we aren't looking to that, are, that will emerge as opportunities. One thing that I'm doing a lot more of is I'm doing a lot more podcasts now than I, you know, doing a lot more audio and producing, producing content that way. The one thing I will say, I think, is um, there will be companies and there will be individuals that will lose business because of these mergers, just because, you know, the folks that they normally do business with aren't, don't have the same ability to just green light things like they used to. And that's, and that's going to be harmful. But, you know, every business has to pivot every now and again, or you just won't make it. For us as independent producers or yourself as, you know, the CEO of your own company, I don't know what the effects are going to be. Is it going to be less money for a project? Is it going to be, you know, a situation? Definitely going to be less money. I yeah. mean, that you can't get around that. You, you, you're creating more content and you can't spend the same amount of money on, if you think about, see, I used to be in the music video business, right? And I remember the, 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 what the streaming and Napster and all that did to that industry. I mean, we were, we went from the average video that I was working on that time, time being a quarter million dollars for like a two day shoot and a two week edit to like $5,000 for like video, people doing videos for free. And, and, but the interesting thing is, is there's now more money in that industry, in the music industry than ever before because of streaming and all the different um, ways they can monetize. And then there's product placement and sponsorships for these videos that are being seen by way more people, you know, used to 
have a video that would play on, you know, 106 in Park uh, or something like that. And, and, and you, you know, hopefully a few million people saw it. But now, you know, you have on, you know, Vivo and uh, YouTube, you know, Cardi B will drop a video and 10 million people will see it in one day. It's just different. And I don't know, it, it, one thing that I can tell you, like for, with podcasts, for instance, there's money there, but it's not as much as you would get on doing uh, some big, you know, big series, right? Or some big, you know, some big show for a network. Yes, so, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but I guess what I'm saying is, is that, yeah, it's just going to be a restructuring of how, how we normally do business. And so it's, it's, you got to be agile. So for example, with the music industry example, a lot of the money being made in the music industry now is going directly to more directly to the talent and the management companies versus some of the big, big labels, even though the big, big labels can make money, but you know, it's funny. They, they all resisted it initially. They all resisted streaming. But really, Spotify should be called Universal Records, right? But Universal Records wasn't ready to make that deal, wasn't ready to make that move, right? And so, and so we can't be afraid to dive deep into the new technology, because if you do, you'll be left alone, left left behind, and some other company will sprout up that's doing the thing that you resisted doing because you weren't ready for the change. All right, let's wrap things up with what to watch. All right, so is there anything that you are watching? right now or you've watched recently that you want to recommend just because i just finished watching and i binged like the whole season one and season two of snowpiercer it's an excellent concept and show and just just the fact of this the, the, that they can make this story last this long on a train was amazing by itself. <laughs> have you seen it, by the way? I have not seen it. It's on the list to watch. But now, and and now that you say that it's good, I will definitely. No, it was definitely. Good. Well, I'll tell you this. I watched the movie, right? And and I was like, eh, you know, the movie was decent. But I actually, you know, was just curious. I'm like, well, what are they going to do for this series? So I, I was like, I do this often. I just pop in the pilot, you know, just to like, let me just see the pilot so I can at least know what they're what they're going for. And dude. Five episodes later, <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to watch the rest of it. I was watching it on the plane, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I think some, you know, a show is good when it can suck you in like that. What I would encourage people to watch, I have two things. If, if you haven't seen the two-part documentary Crime of the Century on HBO, it's about the opioid crisis. Uh, I would highly recommend that. And it, it does, it really digs into how the Sackler family, Purdue Pharma, as well as sales reps and, and multiple doctors prescribing opioids, it really just tore apart, you know, so many families and so many people's lives. It, it's multi-layered. It really digs in. It, it's well done and it's a tough watch, but I, it's important. It's an important story. And so I highly recommend that. Also on HBO, a lot of people are talking about Mayor of Easttown. And yes, Mayor is definitely a bingeable series. It just wrapped up and you got it. You got to watch Mayor. It's going to win a bunch of Emmys. Trust me. I'll check that out. Check out. Um, the, the, the other thing that I would say is definitely check out Hope Village which is my documents available on Amazon and among other places. But, you know, the interesting thing about that documentary is I, I didn't make it 
to be kind of like in some kind of moment. I made as a very evergreen documentary that is very helpful to anyone that has a family member or themselves is dealing with substance abuse, you know, as a result of the opioid crisis and, and other attacks on humanity where people are getting addicted to all kinds of different things. But, but we did it in such a way where there's a book that goes along with it called Hope Dealer. And the book and the film combined are just very instructional and informational. If, if uh, um, substance abuse uh, has touched your family or your life in any way, so I encourage anyone that that uh, that's dealing with that to to check it out, and I encourage every everyone that that's listening that makes film and television to to use your your powers for good, and and try to leave something behind that you're proud of that people can learn from. Because as much as we want to entertain, I think that really compelling content that teaches people is some of the most powerful things that we could do with our with our skills. Agreed. We have an opportunity to tell stories, and the more impactful stories we can tell, uh, we should. We have, that, we have that obligation. Ricarlo, thank you once again for being a fantastic guest and providing some amazing insight into multiple topics that are really important for our industry, but just in general to uh, our society. So thank you, my friend. Thank you. Talk to you soon. That's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also write a question if you have one, and I will answer it on the show. Email questions to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.